can't believe. Okay, there we go. Good morning. It is great to be here, and I would like to thank the executive board and Kevin for giving me this opportunity to share some things that God's put on my heart. Um, part of that last song has really been my prayer the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing that we really, after the next half hour or so, that we literally could look into his eyes and see his love. Because I think part of the tendency of those of us who have been blessed and born in the Christian faith, and that's all we've really ever known, or even if you're just new to the faith, there comes a time where there's a plateau where it just seems like you know the right stuff, but you don't really know him. So our hope as a teaching team, it's always been our hope, but we've really placed an emphasis on trying to help all of us to grow deeper and deeper in our faith and in our relationship with Jesus. And so as we prepare for the Holy Week that's coming, as we prepare for ultimately for Easter Sunday, today we're going to look at a really interesting story. We're going to kind of jump over the traditional Palm Sunday service, and we're going to jump right to where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now this particular scene is probably one of the most intense but yet holy moments in all of Scripture. And my hope is that we will see and get a glimpse of the Savior's humanity, but also his divinity. Because it's really interesting. I threw a question out to some of the teaching team and some of the staff. You know, many of us have been, this was the question, many of us have been watching The Chosen over the last couple of years. There's something distinctly unique about that that just seems to draw us in. And almost every person, in one way, shape, or form, their response to my question about what makes that special, what makes that unique, was just that. It was, it's an opportunity to see and sense and feel the humanity of Jesus, but then also see the divinity of Jesus. And the balance that they do in that is amazing. So really my hope is that we visit the Garden of Gethsemane together this morning. That that will be your experience. That that will be my experience. I invite you to come and see. See yourself there in the garden. I'm going to invite us to open our Bibles or whatever you've brought along to read your devices to Mark chapter 14. We're going to read that somewhat familiar scene and story from Gethsemane, starting in verse 32, and we'll go to verse 42. Mark 13, 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall to temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This morning, I want us to wrestle with, consider this question. What does it mean to Jesus? What does it mean to the human side of Jesus, the Holy One, to bear your sin, to bear my sin? Specifically, I'd like us to think and spend some time thinking about what it was like for Jesus to experience God's righteous and furious wrath against our sin through the experience of sinless humanity and human weakness. I think we need to be reminded again that Jesus is, in fact, fully man and fully God. Fully God without sin. Fully man, every emotion that we have, every temptation that we might have, was also his. As we see in the text, it's interesting because the description of Jesus in the garden of Sem- in, in get the garden is much different than any of the previous descriptions throughout Mark that we've been looking at and studying over the past several weeks. We see him in verse 33 and 34 where he's sorrowful to the point of death where his soul is overwhelmed, where he's distressed, where he's troubled. Much, much different, like I said, than the Jesus we've seen throughout Mark, where we've seen him, where he's been forgiving sin and he's been healing the sick, where he's been casting out demons, he's been raising the dead, he's been walking on waters, he's been calming the storms, he's been feeding thousands with just a few loaves and fish. He's been amazing people with his preaching. He's been boldly confronting the religious leaders. He's been authoritative. He's been fearless. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, everything, everything changes. Here, my brothers and sisters, we get to see a glimpse of what it meant for him to bear our sin. Here in the Garden, we get to see Jesus as he contemplates God's wrath. Here in the garden, he's contemplating what he's about to encounter on the cross. A couple of things that I want us to notice when you think about Jesus, fully man, and what he experienced in the garden. First, there was a relational abandonment. Beginning with Gethsemane and then going through the rest of the Holy Week and then ultimately at the cross, we see where the Savior was abandoned and he was alone. If you go back to verse 27, we're told that the Savior informs his disciples. It says this, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus predicts you will all fall away. Peter, James, and John fall asleep. And it ultimately ends up in verse 50 where it's noted in Mark that they all scatter, that they all run. Mark seems to be very intentional with pointing that out to us. What does it mean for the Savior to bear our sins? It meant that he would walk that path 
all alone. Now, I'm not sure I've ever been all alone. There have been times in my life where, for example, when Lisa and the kids would go when they were much younger and she'd go see her parents and I'd be at home feeling all alone, but not really all alone. You know, my folks were a phone call away or drive across town. Coworkers were available. I had friends available. I could go and do, I could do things. I knew it. I thought I felt like I was alone, but I don't think I've ever really been alone. The Savior didn't just feel alone. He was alone. He didn't just feel abandoned. He was abandoned. The second thing I'd like to point out as we consider what does it mean for Jesus to bear our sins. It meant a distress of his soul. A distress of his soul. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 33. We read it said this. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. You know, I think it's difficult for us to truly imagine to truly get our minds around what he was going through, what those emotions may have been. In fact, I've thought for about two weeks now, what would be a great illustration to try to help us get our head around that? Normally that's what we preachers, that's what we teachers try to do, is try to give some sort of real life situation. Here's what I came up with, there isn't one. There is not one thing in my life or your life that could compare to what Jesus and his human nature was going through at that moment. Not one thing. Nothing would do it justice. In fact, translators for centuries have struggled to come up with appropriate words to capture the real essence of the original Greek, the emotional intensity, and the force behind those words. Typically, as we've already read, we read the words deeply troubled or deeply distressed. Some scholars try to, it says that it conveys the idea of sudden amazement, or shock, or terrified surprise. Can you picture it? Can you see Jesus amongst the trees? A couple of translations that are always kind of fun to refer back to. One is the Passion translation and the other is the Message. The Passion says this about those verses. Jesus had an intense feeling, listen to this, of great horror, which plunged his soul into deep sorrow. Or the message says it this way, he sank into the pit of suffocating darkness. Suffocating darkness. Then in verse 34 we read where Jesus says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. His soul is overwhelmed. Jesus is drawing near to the actual experience of death. And at this moment, at this moment, what we're seeing in our own mind as we picture what was going on in Gethsemane that night, Jesus is gripped by the shuddering terror, the suffocating darkness of what was coming. I think we have to ask, why this extreme distress? There's no previous indication of it. If you go back a few verses, and if you look where he was celebrating the Passover, there's no sign. If you look where they were singing hymns, there's no sign. 
He's giving thanks, and there's no sign of the distress that's coming. There does not seem to be any discernible indication that this deep distress of the soul is coming to Jesus. Everything changes. Everything changes in the garden, but why? It wasn't like his impending death was going to be a big surprise. We've already studied and we realize he's already talked about it multiple times to his disciples and to his followers. Why so abruptly? Why now? Why so suddenly? Why so dramatically? Why is Jesus so deeply troubled and so deeply distressed? Here's why. In the garden, the Holy One begins to experience a foretaste of what it means to be a sin bearer, your sin bearer, my sin bearer. That's why there's this dramatic distress of his soul. In the garden, the Savior is contemplating the cup. He's contemplating the cup and all the contents of the cup. It's the cup that's dominating his heart. It's the cup that's dominating his soul as he prays. So what is this cup? We've been referring to it off and on. Again, the Old Testament, Isaiah in particular, other prophets, they would inform us that this cup is the wrath of a righteous and holy God. Jesus is contemplating God's righteous and furious wrath for our sin. I think it's appropriate just for a moment for us to kind of get our head around that. To think, because some of us may in fact be uneasy with the idea of a wrathful God and a loving God. We only like to think about the loving God part of thing. But that is if you understand wrathful as being vengeful. Wrathful is God is holy. God the Father is holy. And because he's holy, it's simply his righteous judgment against sin. Jesus, fully man, in this moment is coming face to face with the fact that he will bear our sin and become the object of the Father's wrath on the cross. This reality is so horrific, so terrible, so overwhelming that we read that he cannot remain upright. Mark informs us in verse 35 that he fell to the ground. Luke talks about how he's bleeding droplets of sweat blood. He's so greatly troubled, so distressed, even to the point of death. Jesus is on the ground pleading with his father. Can you see it? Can you close your eyes and see it? Can you look into his eyes right now and see his love for you? Jesus, in his humanity, is shaken. Critical to note, he did not sin, but in his humanity, he was shaken, shaken to the core. This prospect is so horrific that he prays this prayer. If possible, Take this cup from me. Take this cup. In his sinless humanity, Jesus is so affected by the reality of God's wrath 
and becoming the object of God's wrath that he prays, he prays for an alternative to the cross. I think we need to understand as well that the sorrow and the anxiety is not, is not an expression of fear. It's not a shrinking from the prospect of the physical beating and torture or the ultimate death on the cross, but rather, it's a horror. It's a horror of the one who has lived holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy for the Father. And as we've said oftentimes over the last couple of years, it's from the one who has lived in the circle of love since before time has began. Jesus is horrified in agony at the prospect of being alienated from his father. This horror anticipates the cry that we hear in just a couple of days, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And here in the garden, we overhear him praying for an alternative. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Is there any alternative to this? If there is one, if there is one, could you please provide it? Jesus finished that prayer and he went back to the disciples. Oh, what a, what a savior. Facing everything he's just facing. You read about how he exhorts them, he pleads with them to watch and to pray. Because he knows that they're not ready for what's coming. He pleads with them, watch and pray. And then, and then he goes back and he prays the exact same prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Is there any alternative to this? As he appeals to the Father for an alternative, this is what he hears. Listen. He's listening. Silence. He hears silence. Let me assure you, brothers and sisters, if there was an alternative, the loving Father would have sent one immediately. But there was no alternative. There was no alternative. God so loved the world that he was silent. God so loves you and you and you and me that in that moment he was silent. There was no alternative. What does it mean for him, the Holy One, to bear our sin, abandonment, and distress of soul, the distress of his soul? What does it mean for us? Well, to start with, I'm gonna let the book of Hebrews Explain it, it comes from Hebrews chapter four, the 14th verse. Therefore, it's 
Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly in the faith we profess. Listen to this. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The first thing that we have is we have Jesus, the great high priest. Second thing, here in the garden, we're reminded of the serious and appalling nature of our sin. And because God is holy, something, something had to be done. My sin, your sin, require a savior. And we should recognize our need for a savior. We cannot accompany Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and emerge unaffected by our sin. Everyone. The big ones that everybody sees, that everybody points out, but the little ones that only you know, that only I know. But my friends, more important than that even, more importantly, you cannot accompany Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and emerge unaffected by his love. His love for sinners like you and me. You're going to hear a theme in almost every song. Amazing grace. Let's look real quickly at that verse 36, those precious and powerful words where Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. Is there an alternative? Silence. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Brothers and sisters, that was the greatest act of obedience ever recorded in all of history, and it is the greatest that will ever be recorded in all of history. He drank the cup. He drank it. Every last drop. For you and for me. Just before he entered Gethsemane, he gave the disciples a cup and he encouraged them to drink it. And then he goes to Gethsemane and he takes a different cup, a cup of God's wrath, the cup that he agrees to drink. It's the cup that we should drink. That's my cup. That's your cup. That's our cup. He takes that cup from us and he says, this is the punishment that you deserve because of your sin. He says, I'm gonna take that cup and I'm gonna drink every last drop for you. And I'm gonna give you a cup that you don't deserve. I'm gonna give you a cup which symbolizes my shed blood for the forgiveness of all your sins. I'd like to invite the worship team up as we kind of finish things up. Today I really have two very simple action steps. The first is one that I'm going to encourage all of us to do in the coming days as we again prepare through Holy Week and into Easter. And that would be to read from Psalms 113 to 118. Traditionally, those are the Psalms that 
Biblical historians believe that Jesus and his disciples, and in fact all of Israel, would have been singing during that Passover time. And if you read those psalms over the coming days, you're going to see some amazing words of praise, some amazing words that you're going, Jesus, how could you go from singing that hymn to what you faced in Gethsemane for me? what you did on the cross for me. So I would encourage each of us every day. It doesn't take you long. I've been doing it for a couple of weeks. It may take you five to 10 minutes just to read those few Psalms, 113 to 118. The second thing is I would like to invite the elders to come up because our action step today is I want you to literally, and I'm gonna encourage us all, if you're physically able to come up and hold the cup. Hold the cup that he's placed in your hands. It's not the cup that you deserve. Take a moment. Don't just grab it and drink it, but take a moment to be reminded that the cup that you deserve is no longer in your hands because he drank it. He drank every last drop for you. Not what I will, but what you will. Receive his love for you. My friends, today we get to celebrate amazing grace. How sweet the sound.